From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome to your Global News Hour. I have got some incredible news for you today, some really, really good news. Uh, There is a lot going on, and I'm delighted that you can be with me. Now, if you are watching for the first time on YouTube or Rumble, why not share the link on your social media page to show others that we are breaking the mould in how news is being delivered? On today's show, there are further cracks appearing in the globalists' playbook with division amongst its own ranks. Once the darling of the World Economic Forum, Yuval Harari has been distanced from the private group whose leader, Klaus Schwab, behaves like he is the CEO of Earth. And Estonia, let's wait for this one, has announced that it has pulled out of the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty before the December 1st deadline. And the Philippines have announced a parliamentary inquiry into excess deaths. And as his polling numbers crash, I ask if Anthony Albanese will be the next one-term wonder in a long line of failed Australian Prime Ministers since 2007. But first today, a third batch of 39 Palestinian prisoners has been freed as the exchange of captives between Hamas and Israel continues for a third day under a four-day truce deal. Large crowds of Palestinians took to the streets in Ramallah, the occupied West Bank, on Sunday night as they waited for Red Cross buses carrying the prisoners. Some waved Palestinian flags alongside the flags of the two main Palestinian political parties, Hamas and Fatah. Some youths climbed on top of a white bus transporting mostly young men and some female prisoners. Meanwhile, in nearby Betunia, where some Palestinians had also gathered, three Palestinians aged 15, 18 and 33 were injured after Israeli forces fired live rounds, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society said. Two children aged 11 and 13 were admitted to hospital for tear gas inhalations, the PRCS added. And earlier on Sunday, Hamas handed over 13 Israeli captives, including nine children and four foreign nationals, three from Thailand and one from Russia, to the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, as part of this truce deal. The Israeli-Russian was released in response to Russian President Vladimir Putin's efforts and in recognition of Russia's position in support of Palestine, Hamas said in a statement, he's the first male captive to be released since the truce deal came into effect. With more, we join this report as the Palestinians' prisoners were being returned. This is Ramallah, where obviously large crowds are waiting for the return of 39, all men, some of them teenagers, who've been held in Israeli detention, who are being released as part of this exchange. Emotions clearly running high. We can go to Nida Ibrahim, who's there in Ramallah. Nida, talk us through what we're seeing and hearing. We've just seen Palestinians marching and carrying one prisoner, uh, freed prisoner, on their shoulders, and they made their way into the square. But now we are waiting for what we believe is uh, the bus that is carrying uh, some of those 39 Palestinians who have been released. Remember, some of them have already been released to Jerusalem, and uh, the rest are going to be making their way to the occupied West Banks, uh, 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 Arafat. Square, as you can see, it's a, 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 
scene that is emotional, that is filled with feelings of victory amongst many Palestinians, but it's not uh, short on anyone to say that they remember the uh, sacrifices that are taking place in Gaza, not just the killings, not just the injury, not just the bombing of homes, but the displacement of Palestinians outside of their homes. This is a fear many Palestinians have that Israel has been systematically kicking Palestinians out of their homes in the north of Gaza and then it's gonna corner them in the south later on to kind of push them away uh, outside of the besieged Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, US President Joe Biden said a four-year-old Israeli-American girl named Abigail Eden, whose parents were killed in the October 7 Hamas attack, was also among those released. Her name had appeared on a list of hostages that Hamas previously said that it planned to release Sunday. Qatari Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Sheikh Mohammed Bill Abdul Rahman said told Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan. However, multiple sources had indicated to Brennan that no release was certain due to the delicate nature of the situation. Though 17 hostages, including Abigail, were released by Hamas Sunday, 14 of them are Israeli citizens and three are foreign nationals, Israeli officials said. Abigail, who is Israeli-American, holds citizenship in both countries. Here is Biden speaking at a recent press conference at Nantucket. And uh, so those who are now uh, wrapping Abigail in love and care and the supportive services she needs, she's been through a terrible trauma. You know, her mom was killed in front of her when her, when her kibbutz was uh, attacked by Hamas terrorists on October the 7th. Abigail ran to her dad then, who then was gunned down gunned down as well while using his body to shield little Abigail. She then ran to a neighbor for help where they were all taken hostage. The, that entire house of neighbors were taken hostage by Hamas and held for 50 days. What she endured is unthinkable. Abigail was among 13 hostages released today from Gaza under the brokered and sustained, though intensive, U.S. diplomacy. She's now safely in Israel. And we continue to press and expect for additional Americans will be released as well. And we will not stop working until every hostage is returned to their loved ones. As I said when I spoke about this deal on Friday, this has been the product of a lot of hard work and weeks of personal engagement for me and my team. We've been in close contact with the leaders of Qatar, Egypt, and Israel, speaking with each one of them repeatedly over the past few weeks to help secure this deal. We spoke again yesterday with the Emir of Qatar, uh, I owe special thanks to, in order to keep the hostage release on track and push for Abigail to be part of this release. And I'll be speaking again shortly with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And we will continue to remain personally engaged, personally engaged to see that this deal is fully implemented and work to extend the deal as well. Meanwhile, Congressman Mike Gallagher spoke to Sean Duffy on Fox, questioning the value proposition of the prisoner exchange with the hostages with no moral equivalence. We join the conversation here as he's asked if he is relieved for the victims. Well, you can't help but be happy for the families. I'm sure yeah. if it were our kids, we would just be focused on wanting our kids back. So I understand that sentiment completely. 
I think the broader risk is this. Well, one, if you just look at the terms of the deal, for every three terrorists that Israel is releasing, you're getting one innocent civilian released by Hamas. So Israel is releasing suicide bombers, terrorists who are stabbing Jews, and Hamas is meanwhile releasing 13-year-old girls, nine-year-old girls, reportedly some toddlers. So that just goes to show there's no moral equivalence here. We've also had past deals like this, notably a 2011 deal, whereby the current leader of Hamas in Gaza was released in return for an Israeli soldier that have come back to bite Israel. So that is the broader concern. There's no moral equivalence here, no matter how much hashtag free Palestine trends on TikTok. There's also the issue that Hamas reportedly has violated the terms of the ceasefire already. We were supposed to see the Red Cross visiting victims, for example. We haven't seen that. And then we know that Hamas is going to use these periodic releases of prisoners in order to drag out a temporary ceasefire to potentially a permanent ceasefire, which would be damaging to Israel's security. So I think we should look at this less as a diplomatic breakthrough and more as an extension of Hamas's psychological warfare designed to continue to increase the international pressure on Israel in pursuit of a permanent ceasefire. And that would be a bad outcome. And in a surprising move, the Philippines House of Representatives has initiated a formal investigation into a staggering number of unexplained excess deaths, citing official statistics. Deputy Speaker of the House of Reps, Dan Fernandez, voiced the concerns that have led to the inquiry. The copy of the said resolution, this is about 260,000 excess deaths that we experienced in this country, showing a graph coming from the Philippine Statistics Authority. In the Department of Health, they also have copies that have been submitted. We are shocked to find out that there were 262,000 excess deaths in 2021 alone. He further added that the concerning trend continued into the following year after the that 2022 still had 67,000 excess deaths. They're all unexplained deaths, meaning they were non-COVID. In comparison, from 2020 to November of 2023, COVID-19 claimed 67,000 lives. Now, if this was to be the vaccine, that would be four times the amount to the vaccine than to COVID. The government's decision to launch an investigation underscores the severity of the situation and the pressing need for explanations of these deaths. With COVID ruled out as the cause for them, authorities are compelled to look elsewhere to understand the origins of this alarm fatality rate. As the investigation unfolds, the families of those lost will be watching closely, hoping for clarity and closure in the face of such overwhelming grief. The Filipino nation and the whole world awaits answers that will shed light on this dark chapter of unexplained excess deaths. And the incoming New Zealand government under Prime Minister-elect Christopher Luxon has brokered a historic deal with New Zealand First, led by Winston Peters, to terminate all COVID-19 vaccine mandates and establish an inquiry into the pandemic, according to a story in the Epoch Times. Meanwhile, Dr. Philip Altman writes, there is no science to support vaccine mandates. This has been widely known for more than three years, yet brainless bureaucrats drunk with power continue to issue these idiotic mandates, which is destroying individuals, families and the entire country of Australia, where he writes from. The new New Zealand government will take a close look at any prospective agreements with the United Nations and related bodies such as the World Health Organization, which have sought to grab power in a legally binding global pandemic treaty. It looks like people are waking up to the fascist globalist agenda across the ditch, writes Altman. 
Now, I will also have more on the plans of the latest new New Zealand government later in this hour. And on November 22nd, 11 members of the Estonian parliament wrote a letter to the World Health Organization to reject the proposed international agreement on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, also known as the Pandemic Treaty or Pandemic Accord. The letter also records the amendments of, sorry, it rejects the amendments of the international health regulations. Last month, Exposed News published an article explaining that in May of 2022, the World Health Assembly quietly agreed to reduce the period during which nations have to opt out of future amendments to the international health regulations. For nations to retain longer 18-month period previously allowed for nations to opt out, countries needed to send the WHO a short note that they are opting out of the amendments decided by the WHA in 2022 and that date was set at the 1st of December of 2023. And so the letter from the Estonian MPs is dated 22nd of November 2023, just eight days before the 1st of December deadline. The MPs haven't simply opted out of the amendments decided by the WHA last year. They have gone further and rejected both the proposed pandemic treaty and the IHR amendments in their entirety, as well as additional funding to the World Health Organization. Kelly Gruntel, one of the MPs who signed the letter, broke the news on Facebook with a letter that begins, hereby the Republic of Estonia, based on Article 2022, sorry, 22 of the Statute of the World Health Organization, declares that it rejects and does not consent to the International Agreement on Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness and Response, as well as complementary amendments to the IHR 2005 and to improving the sustainability of World Health Organization funding. Estonia said no to the implementation of forcing measures, Gruntel on Facebook said 2023, in November of 2023. This contradicts a decision made early last year on the 4th of March 22, the Estonian European Union Affairs Committee held a meeting to vote on whether the European Commission was authorised to negotiate the WHO's two instruments on behalf of Estonia. The EUAC is a standing committee of the Parliament of Estonia and has a deciding and coordinating role on issues relating to the European Union. The Estonian government is bound by the EUAC's decision and uses these decisions in its discussions in Europe. If the government does not follow the EUAC's decisions, then it must provide the EUAC with reasons for not doing so. At the March 22 meeting, three members of the EUAC voted against and nine voted in favour of giving the European Commission the authority to open negotiations on a pandemic treaty, IHR amendments and improving the sustainability of the WHO funding on behalf of the Republic of Estonia. Now the Parliament of Estonia has spoken. This is a massive deal, and I wonder how many people will now be looking to migrate to that country. And Sierra Leone President Julius Amada Bio said most of the leaders of an earlier attack on a military barracks in the capital, Freetown, had been arrested, adding that security operations and an investigation were ongoing. Sierra Leone that had that we have overcome this challenge, he said, adding that calm had been restored. The government said security forces had repelled renegade soldiers who attempted to break into a military armory in Freetown during the early hours of Sunday. Nationwide curfew was imposed. Gunshots were heard across the city as the assailants attacked a central prison 
and a police station. The West African country's Civil Aviation Authority urged airlines to reschedule flights after the curfew was declared, while the soldier on its frontier with neighbouring Guinea told Reuters that they had been instructed to shut the border. Sierra Leone has been tense since Mr Bio was re-elected in June, a result rejected by the main opposition candidate and questioned by international partners, including the US and the EU. In August of 2022, at least 21 civilians and six police officers were killed in an anti-government protest in the country, which is still recovering from a 1991 to 2002 civil war in which more than 50,000 people were killed and hundreds maimed. Hundreds of thousands, I should say, were maimed. Bio said the protest was an attempt to overthrow the government. And coming up after the break, the Brazilian hero who stopped the Dublin attacker is rewarded by generous Irish citizens. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's James Freeman. I think at this point now, I'm disgusted that the UK has not called for an immediate ceasefire. The British government is usually quick to condemn many countries around the world for breaking international law. So what is different here? Yes, what Hamas did was terrible. And yes, it needs to be addressed. But whatever Hamas did does not justify the deliberate bombing of civilians because no one can say that it's not deliberate. Um, you can't merely say that civilians deaths in their thousands are acceptable collateral damage. You can never say that, not with these numbers. It is deliberate what is going on. I'm seeing numbers of around 10,000 dead now, including 4,000 children. And that was two days ago those numbers came in. Innocence in all of this. Um, they've never voted for this and they have no say whatsoever in any of it. 3,000 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks in the US and the world looked on in horror and yet 4,000 children have been killed by Israeli bombs and too many dismiss this saying that Israel has the right to defend itself. James Freeman on today's News Talk TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month virtually 9 out of 10 Americans that's real that's substantive that's important and that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. <laughs> My baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those <laughs> beans smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give Mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay, smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. This, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Over 350,000 euro have so far been crowdfunded for a Brazilian food delivery driver 
who helped stop a knife rampage in which three children were stabbed in Dublin, an incident that sparked riots in the Irish capital. Chao Benicio, 43, who emigrated to Dublin last year, used his motorbike helmet to strike the attacker when he witnessed the violent assault outside a primary school the outskirts of Dublin's north inner city on Thursday afternoon. Three children and an adult, Leanne Flynn, the crash worker in her 30s, were injured. The five-year-old girl remains in hospital with serious injuries. Flynn is in a serious but stable condition in hospital, police said on Saturday, having spent two days in intensive care. I didn't even make a decision. It was pure instinct, he told the Irish publication The Journal on Thursday. It was all over in seconds. He fell to the ground. I didn't see where the knife went and the other people stepped in. He added, I didn't want to anyone would, I didn't know what anyone would do. He said, I knew I could use my helmet as a weapon. The assailant, who has yet to be formally identified by Irish authorities, also sustained serious injuries in the incident. Local media outlet Gripped reported, citing police sources on Thursday, that the suspect is of Algerian origin. Subsequent reports indicated that the man thought to be in his late 30s is a naturalised Irish citizen who has lived in the country for two decades. The incident sparked Dublin's worst rioting in two decades as hundreds congregated in the city centre, with many expressing anti-immigration sentiments. Numerous businesses were ransacked, with while various public transport and police vehicles were set alight. 34 people have so far been arrested, with authorities pledging to use CCTV footage to identify further culprits. Benicio was added, aided in his efforts by a 17-year-old trainee chef from France who has been working at a Dublin restaurant. He suffered injuries to his hands and face during the struggle and received a phone call on Friday from French President Emmanuel Macron praising him for his efforts. And Switzerland imported more than 14 tonnes of gold from Russia last month for processing, taking advantage of the fact that it was shipped through third countries and thus did not violate Western sanctions. The latest data from the Swiss Federal Council has revealed in October, the Alpine country's gold imports totaled $879 million, of which 875 of them worth of precious metal originated from sanctions hit country and was delivered through the UK and Moldova, data has showed. In August 2022, Switzerland joined the EU's seventh package of Ukraine-related restrictions, which included a ban on the direct or indirect purchase, import or transfer of gold and gold jewellery jewelry originating from Russia, and also prohibited exports from Russia to the bloc. Sanctions also targeted exports of gold items processed in a third country. However, the Swiss regulation states that the gold that was produced in Russia before the embargo is not subject to sanctions, meaning that that commodity can be legally imported from third countries. Since the ban took effect, the questions of where and how Switzerland, a major global hub for processing the precious metal, sources its gold, have been the subject of growing media and public attention. Some media outlets have been suggesting that the EU ban apparently had little impact on Swiss imports of gold from Russia as its refineries continue to buy and remelt the metal, making it virtually impossible to trace its origin. It's always one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. In the quest to bring the creation of man-made COVID into the public consciousness, a slow trail of new evidence continues to emerge. Previously on this show, we've exposed Ukrainian bio labs operating in that country and confirmed by senior US government officials. Earlier this year, we learned of the accidental discovery of a bio lab inside the United States. Rep Mike Gallagher revealed more information on that secret China bio lab that was discovered operating in California. 
Gallagher says the biolab owner is an illegal alien from China and his biolab was funded by the Chinese Communist government. With more, we join part of this interview now from Fox, where Duffy again was interviewing Gallagher about how many biolabs are operating inside the United States. The honest answer is we don't know. And what worries me in doing this investigation, uh, my committee conducted the investigation, we have a bipartisan report that explains the whole thing that Americans can read, is that if the FBI director or the president turned to the FBI director and said, hey, we need to figure out how many of these we have in the United States, they wouldn't even know where to begin. Here we had a Chinese citizen who came to America illegally. He was fleeing a $330 million judgment for intellectual property theft on behalf of the Chinese government. He set up this lab and he was buying dangerous pathogens, including Ebola, including tuberculosis, including HIV, online. So we have no trip guard, we have no trip wires in place, no safeguards in place in order to prevent potentially a hostile actor from buying dangerous pathogens in order to damage America. And then when the local officials found this, and it was all because a local and business a building inspector saw a pipe sticking out of what was supposed to be an abandoned building, they called the FBI. The FBI said, well, we can't investigate because there's no ties to WMD, which is absurd. They called the CDC. The CDC hung up on them initially, and it wasn't until the local congressman got on the case that the CDC was forced to send a team to investigate, and that wasn't until many, many months later. So this has revealed a huge, soft underbelly in our domestic national security. It's incredibly troubling. We need to do more to prevent this from happening. We've all seen what can happen to our society when we don't have vigilance against potential pathogens and a pandemic in the last few years. And we know beyond anything else, beyond anything else, the one thing that the pandemic should have taught us is that you cannot trust the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to this issue. Now, with the fallout continuing from the Victorian government's decision to back out of hosting the Commonwealth Games event in 2026, many have questioned its future within the international sporting landscape. Despite being a raging success in years gone past, public and media interest has dwindled from the last two events. The declining interest, along with a significant cost to host the Games, saw the Premier Dan Andrews cancel his state's hosting rights, leaving the event in purgatory just two years away from the proposed start. With no secured future for the next two games, Australia's richest person, Gina Reinhart, has publicly declared her interest in putting on a coast-to-coast event, with the Gold Coast on the east coast of Australia and Perth on the west as the two host cities. Despite this, former Commonwealth Games gold medalist Simon Orchard admitted that he would be in favour of the event being permanently scrapped. It's a great nursery for younger athletes to develop ahead of an Olympic Games, he said, but I can't help but say... I think it's past its prime and it's time to go for the Commonwealth Games. That's my thought, he said. He himself, Orchard, has won two medals at previous Games. And although he believes the Games' time is up, he revealed his confidence in the Reinhardt-backed proposal to be a success in 2026. I reckon it's a great way to capture two totally different audiences. I know that Basil Zempelis, the Perth mayor and sports commentator, is big on this. He would absolutely love it, Orchard added. Perth has a new hockey stadium going in. They can host that. Gold Coast is a party town. I'd be putting my hand up to get part on that media ticket. And coming up after the news headlines, will Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese be another one-term wonder? This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT. Here's what's making news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. 
Violent riots erupted on the streets of Dublin on Thursday night after several children were injured in a mass stabbing at a primary school which is rumoured to have been committed by a migrant. It's been revealed Germany is running out of money for Ukraine, with reports suggesting Berlin won't be able to deliver Kyiv any more tanks than it has already pledged. And the planned ceasefire between Israel and Hamas was due to start on Friday morning, with the first hostages expected to be released Friday afternoon. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at his stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. Ask me what you know is true. I don't have to tell you. I love your precious heart. I, I was standing, you were there. Two worlds colliding, and they could never. Support Act ensures that music workers who need help can access the resources and support they need because we can't do this without them. We could live for a thousand years Cause we all have ways But some of us don't know This Oz Music T-shirt day on Thursday, the 30th of November. Wear and donate now. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Oh. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Welcome back. Here's a question. Is Anthony Albanese the next Aussie Prime Minister? 
to get the revolving door treatment. Australia is often last to the table when it comes to global trends. As the world is tiring of wokeism, Australia voted in their most woke prime minister ever, likely after Conservative Scott Morrison had to go after abandoning conservative principles during COVID to become authoritarian, albeit with the help of a majority of Labor premiers keen to perpetuate the Western trend of putting a boot into the neck of dissent in the brutal and inhumane COVID policies falsely attributed to saving lives, with a host of policies proved to be net worse than doing nothing. Lockdowns caused more damage than help, with mental health abandonment, business failure, massive economic loss, mask mandates for a product that did not work, and of course the vaccine, preventative medicine that didn't prevent anything. Who deserves the current Prime Minister? Who does he really serve is the question. Now, Judith Sloan writes in The Spectator, the suitably nicknamed Airbus Albo's recent trip to the Pacific Leaders Forum, he managed to commit $2 billion of our money to the United Nations Boondoggle Climate Fund. In addition, he pledged a further $350 million to climate measures for the Pacific Islands. Who knows what this money will really be used for? There is some chat about the security benefits of the relationship and fending off the influence of China, but there is no hard analysis. Albanese also managed to hand over 280 annual visas for those living in Tuvalu to migrate to Australia because they are preordained as climate refugees. This is notwithstanding the fact that it is agreed that Tuvalu is not seeking or is not sinking into the sea anymore, and its useful landmass has actually expanded by over 2% in the past several decades. But what the heck? It played well with the Guardian crowd. And what good for Tuvalu should be good for plenty of other Pacific islands. As for Airbus's joint to catch up with the President Xi, it was portrayed as pathbreaking by many journalists who had previously invested heavily in the benefits of the China-Australia relationship. The fact is that trade sanctions tariff that China has imposed on Australia in recent times, think here coal, barley, wine, lobster, were prescribed by the free trade agreement between the two countries finalised under the Abbott coalition government and free should be free. But it's okay, Albanese masterfully negotiated a deal where China would keep its 99-year lease of the port of Darwin while releasing an Australian citizen who should never have been locked up in China in the first place. That's action for you, writes Sloan. Well, Labor's primary vote has now tumbled to below its 2022 election result for the first time, with most, most major parties now neck and neck on a two-party preferred basis as cost of living pressures escalate and the Albanese government faces a mounting list of political and policy crises. An exclusive news poll conducted for the Australian newspaper shows Labor's primary vote falling four points to just 31%. In the past three weeks, the government now heads into the final parliamentary sitting of the year with its primary support lower than its election result of 32.6%. The coalition's primary vote has lifted a point to 38%, its highest level of support since the election. In two-party preferred terms, this puts Labor and the coalition at 50-50 for the first time, on the back of a four-point turnaround since the last news poll just three weeks ago. The sharp fall for Labor marks a 2.1% national swing against the government since the election. If an election were held at the weekend, Labor would likely lose its majority in the House of Representatives, becoming a minority government. Anthony Albanese has also suffered a further fall in his approval ratings, reaching the lowest level of support since the election. The sharp electoral backlash against Labor follows the 13th interest rate rise this month, amid warnings from the RBA that the inflation problem was far from being resolved, 
with further borrowers and businesses facing the prospect of more rate rises. But the government has also been plagued with the unexpected political events since the failure of the voice referendum in October, which marked the beginning of a slide in electoral support for the government and the PM personally. Since the last news poll, the government has stood accused of bungling the policy response to the High Court's decision to overturn indefinite immigration detention, while the Prime Minister was criticised for his delayed and secretive response to China's Navy's aggressive manoeuvres against Australian Navy divers. The opposition has also taken the government to task over a perceived slow response to rising anti-Semitism and pro-Palestinian protests against a backdrop of Mr Albanese's frequent overseas travel. While electoral support for Labor fell following the loss of the referendum, the latest news poll conducted between Monday and Friday marks the single greatest fall in a single period for the government. Labor's primary vote has fallen five points since July, while Albanese's personal approval ratings have fallen deeply into negative territory and is now level with Liberal leader Peter Dutton. Albanese's approval ratings fell a further two points to 40%. This is the Prime Minister's lowest level of approval since the election. It has fallen 12 points since July. His dissatisfaction level rose a point to 53%, giving him a net approval rating of minus 13. Whilst Dutton's approval rating of 37% and disapproval of 50 remains unchanged, giving Albanese and, um, and Dutton the same net 13 results. So it's the second poll in a row to show more voters were dissatisfied with Albanese's performance than they were with Dutton. And the head-to-head -head contest between the two leaders remains unchanged, with Albanese 46 Dutton 35, though the gap has closed by 14 percentage points. It's a dangerous trend for an embattled Prime Minister who has declared in the past to be an economic illiterate amidst a cost of living crisis where he chose instead to focus on the voice campaign with his admission that he did not even read the Uluru statement from the heart. Not only does he look out of touch, he is out of touch. In the 32 years between 1975 and 2007, Australia was served by four prime ministers, Malcolm Fraser for seven years until 1983, Bob Hawke for eight years until 91, Paul Keating for four years until 1996, and John Howard then for another 11 years. In the 16 years since 2007, Australia has had seven prime ministers with not one term reaching four years in total and only three leaders winning an election since appointment, those being Julia Gillard forming only a minority government, Malcolm Turnbull after a double dissolution where he lost almost 20 seats, and Scott Morrison, Albo's slide a warning that he may not be able to buck this trend. In politics, as former PM Paul Keating said, always back self-interest because you know it's trying. After the break, New Zealand's new coalition government comprises three political parties with a brand new agenda. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. 
Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. Take us back in time, and who was Mike Flynn? He was the National Security Advisor to the President. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming President of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. This moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism, but the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com. Jason Oborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Over in New Zealand, a new government has been formed. The centre-right nationals, led by incoming Prime Minister Christopher Luxon, will return to power alongside the populist New Zealand First Party, Libertarian ACT New Zealand. This comes after six long years of rule by governments led by the left-leaning, fiercely globalist Labor Party. The Coalition Agreement outlines plans to roll back the use of Maori language, review affirmative action policies, and assess how the country's founding treaty document is interpreted in legislation. However, the controversial proposal to have a referendum on the interpretation of the document, the Treaty of Waitangi, will not happen. The outgoing Labor Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, successor to COVID craze Jacinda Ardern, said the changes in the policy were going to turn back progress. New Prime Minister Luxon said the government will amend the Reserve Bank of New Zealand Act 2021 in order to remove the dual mandate on inflation and employment and to focus monetary policy on price stability. There are also ambitious plans to repeal a ban on offshore oil and gas exploration introduced by the previous Labor government, according to coalition documents. The new government will cut personal income taxes, 
following through on a campaign policy used to woo middle-income voters struggling with rising costs of living. Delivering tax relief is just one part of the government's plan to rebuild the economy. The government will ease the cost of living, reduce wasteful spending and lift economic growth to increase opportunities and prosperity for all New Zealanders, Luxon said. The three new ruling parties said they plan to rewrite the Arms Act without giving any further details. They are poised to undertake a review of the gun registry introduced after a shooter killed 51 Muslim worshippers in 2019. The plan also aims to train no fewer than 500 new police officers. We want change that makes our great country even better. This coalition government is going to deliver that change, he said. After a signing ceremony at Parliament House on Friday, Luxon said the role of Deputy Prime Minister would be split between the populist New Zealand First Party leader Winston Peters and the ACT Party leader David Seymour. Peters will take the role for the first half of the term and Seymour will go second. National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis will be uh, the Finance Minister and Peters himself would also be Foreign Minister, the three parties said in a joint statement. It'll be the first time in New Zealand's history that three parties will form a coalition. Meanwhile, in Canada, recent polling throughout the month of November, where eight separate polls were conducted by four different agencies, has shown the Conservative opposition averaging more than 40% support compared to Justin Trudeau's Liberals averaging less than 25%. That means more than three out of four people in Canada do not want Trudeau in charge, and it's not hard to see why in his Western nation, where high inflation, high housing costs, high energy costs, misinformation mandates, and its woeful health policy on drugs and shortage of doctors, it's no wonder he is in the electoral doghouse. Looking like a leader in waiting is Canada's opposition leader, Pierre Poliev, who in this video interview shot in an apple orchard, he explains how common sense is the pathway out of left globalist absurdity that wants entire solutions at any price that harms its own citizens. Let's take a look at this alternative to the left in Canada. We're no longer going to accept that this or that gatekeeping bureaucracy stands in the way of obvious common sense solutions. Um, the, it is unacceptable that 20,000 doctors can't work in Canada when we have a massive shortage. And when people come to me and say, yeah, but this or that clerk or bureaucracy is not going to be happy, that's life. Right. There's going to be a lot of vested interests and bureaucracies that are going to be very unhappy when I'm Prime Minister. Okay. Um, on the on the topic, I mean, in terms of your sort of strategy currently, you're obviously taking the populist uh, pathway. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, ap appealing appealing to people's uh, more emotional levels, I would guess. Um, I mean, what certainly, you mean certainly, you, certainly you tap certainly you tap uh, very strong ideological language quite frequently. Like what? Uh, left wing, you know, this and that, right wing, you know, I mean, it's that, that type I of ideological thing. I never really talk about left but or right. Anyways, a lot I of people... I don't really believe in that. Okay. A lot of people would, would say that you're simply taking a page out of the Donald Trump uh, book. Like which people would say that? Well, I'm sure a great many Canadians, but... Like who? <laughs> I don't know who, but... Well, you're the um, one who asked the question, so yeah. oh, you must know somebody. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sure there's some out there, but anyways, the, the point of this the point of this question is, I mean, why should why should Canadians trust you with their vote, given, you know, 
not not just the sort of ideological inclination in terms of taking the page of Donald Trump's book, but also... What are you also, talking about? What page? What page? Can you give okay. me a page? Give me the page. You keep <laughs> in, saying in terms, in terms of tur turning things quite dramatically in terms of, of Trudeau and, and the left wing and all of this, I mean, you, you, you make quite a, you know, it's, it's quite a play that you make on it. So I'm, I'm not just sure. I don't, under, I don't know what your question okay. is. Okay, then forget that. Why should Canadians trust you with their vote? Common sense. Okay. common sense for, for a change. We're going to make common sense common in this country. We don't have any common sense in the current government. You know, the guy prints $600 billion, grows our money supply by 32% in three years. That's growing the money eight times faster than the economy. No wonder we have the worst infl inflation in four decades. I'm going to cap spending, cut waste, so that we can balance the budget and bring down inflation and interest rates. You'll want to be able to pay your mortgage again. You want to be able to afford rent. Then you have to vote for Pierre Polyev because I'm the only one with a common sense plan that will bring back the buying power of your paycheck. Um, second, I'm going to make work pay. Right now we punish work. You know, they're, all, they're asking why doesn't anybody want to work? Because work doesn't pay. Why would you work when you get punished for working? Our country now punishes work. You make it, Trudeau takes it. I'm going to cut taxes so people bring home more of each dollar they earn. Housing. We have the fewest houses per capita in the G7. Why? Too much bureaucracy. We have the land. We have more land than any other country in the G7. Yet why, why do we have the fewest houses per capita? Because you can't get anything built. I'm going to require cities boost home building by 15% per year. Or they're going to lose federal money. But those that beat my target will get a bonus. So we reward good behavior and punish bad. That's common sense too. We're also going to bring home safe streets. People are going to feel safe in Kelowna. Kelowna is the worst crime in all of Canada after eight years of Trudeau and Singh. And I'm going to get rid of their, I'm going to bring in jail and not bail for repeat violent offenders, treatment and not decriminalize crack to bring our loved ones home drug free. And we're going to secure the borders to keep illegal guns out while protecting the rights of lawful, licensed hunters and sport shooters. Reuters fact check from March of this year claims that Yuval Harari is not a World Economic Forum or United Nations spokesperson who has misled social media users into thinking that a statement about human free will the poster attributes to the Israeli philosopher represents the views of those bodies. Harari was once considered a lead advisor to Klaus Schwab. He's a professor of history at the University of Jerusalem. Interactions with the Post suggest that users perceive the statement to have been made on behalf of the international organisations. However, the fact check claims that the quotation itself is unverified and Yuval Harari does not hold any official position with those two bodies. Harari's own official website says that he is a lecturer at the Department of History in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Let's do a little bit of digging ourselves. I'm going to play a clip now. And COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, we need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin. What we have seen so far, it's corporations and governments collecting data about where we go, who we meet, what movies we watch. The next phase is the surveillance going under our skin. We now see mass surveillance systems established even in democratic countries 
which previously rejected them, and we also see a change in the nature of surveillance. Previously, surveillance was mainly above the skin, now it's going under the skin. Governments want to know not just where we go or who we meet, above all they want to know what is happening under our skin. What's our body temperature? What's our blood pressure? What, what is our medical condition? Now humans are developing even bigger powers than ever before. We are really acquiring divine powers of creation and destruction. We are really upgrading humans into gods. We are acquiring, for instance, the, the power to re-engineer life. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. I mean, all this story about Jesus rising from the dead and being the son of God, this is fake news. Fake news. Now, what is interesting in December of 2022 was that a WEFS spokesperson told Reuters that Harari is not affiliated with the organisation and that the existence of a bio of Harari on the WEF website simply means he attended one of our events, but he's not at all working in our organisation or for it. If a human is to be hacked by the government, then by definition, one would lose control of their own free will, to which Harari is correct. The distancing by Reuters for the World Economic Forum, an unelected private body warning of a great reset, alone nothing and be happy, eat Z-bugs, is telling us that Reuters did not try too hard in its fact check to push distance between Harari from Schwab in the war against the globalists. This is a notable divide. If Jesus Christ being the son of God in his fake news, then is Harari ignoring the Bible when he warns of imminent nuclear war possibility as a rumour of war? in the greatest danger that we have been for years and actually the entire region is in the greatest danger we have been for years uh, we could theoretically be just 24 hours away from a nuclear war uh, because there is a credible threat that Hezbollah and other Iranian allies will attack Israel with tens of thousands of missiles in which case Israel could uh, defend itself with all the weapons it has, including nuclear capabilities. So this is a very dangerous moment. Sensing that Harari might be trying to remain relevant, given he may have been giving away too much already, here he is warning against artificial intelligence, but defending and manipulating history in terms of the COVID vaccine race in the process. So what happens if the world is increasingly dominated by entities who are more intelligent than us, but they have no feelings? They are never sad, they are never joyful, they don't have hatred, they don't have love. We don't know. One of the biggest questions about the future is what happens when increasingly the world is dominated by these super intelligent but non-conscious beings because we don't understand the consequences of, of such a new power taking over the world, the safest thing is to slow down and wait until we understand it better. Mm. You know, like drug companies producing a new medicine, 
they can't just release the medicine to the public before they go through a long process, can take many years, of testing this medicine, making sure they understand it, making sure it's safe. But tech companies, they create now things which are much more powerful than medicines, these new AI tools, and they just release them to the public sphere without any understanding of what the consequences will be. So I think the first yes. step is to slow down. No, you can't do that. You have to first check for safety, then see if we can release it to the public. Now, before COVID, the time it took to create a new medicine did take years. But for a COVID-19 jab, it didn't, even using brand new technology called messenger RNA in an emergency situation, which also allowed for shortcuts and softening of standards to get this through. The Harari entirely missed this. In the process of changing history to suit his narrative and the way in which he and the WEF chose to tell us how we would be dictated to by corporations and governments in the future, Harari still thinks he and his globalist counterparts are the good guys, mainly because they can see things at a level larger than any other individual nation, that nationalism by definition is selfish and irresponsible. But in so announcing this, he admits it is winning. Once again, Harari and his hubris has let the cat out of the bag. Um, you know, 10 years ago, like when I wrote Sapiens, the world had many problems, but we had an order. There was a global liberal order based on universal values. The basic message of the liberal order was that all human beings belong to the same species. Then you had this wave of populism, not just, you know, countries like Russia, but within the United States, within the European P uh, Union, uh, populists attacking liberal values and ideas, destroying from within the global order. Again, the very idea of global cooperation became synonymous with treason. You should only care about your country. And the result was that the order collapsed. They didn't offer anything to replace it. If they attacked the liberal order and said, okay, but we have an idea for a, a different order. These are the universal values we believe in. These are the global institutions we support. Okay, let's talk about it. But they destroyed the order without offering anything to replace it. And when you destroy order, what you get is disorder, chaos, violence. And if we don't restore a global order, then the scenes we now see in Israel and in Gaza, unfortunately, we will see them in more and more places around the world. It's a really odd set of comments by Harari in those sets of clips in interviews that he's given. The globalists are still in charge all around the world. It's the globalists where the wars are coming from, and yet he's blaming the nationalists for defeating the global order. For mine, I didn't know the globalists had been defeated yet, yet Harari is telling us that they are. That should give us all a lot of confidence. And so tying this back to the story of Estonia wholly rejecting the IHR4 from the World Health Organization and its pandemic treaty, with the Philippines announcing an excess deaths inquiry with New Zealand ending vaccine mandates, with Trudeau and Albanese alongside Biden collapsing in the polls, Globalist stranglehold on the narrative has slipped and the grip is no longer absolute. The winds of change are gaining strength and momentum. And as before we go, as Christmas nears, one might wish to stock up on chocolate as prices for cocoa soared to their highest levels in nearly half a century this week. 
amid declining global supply, according to trading data. New York futures for the key chocolate-making ingredient rose above $4,200 per metric tonne, the highest price for the commodity since September of 1977, surpassing the 2011 peak that resulted from that year's cocoa export ban by the Ivory Coast. Prices have skyrocketed by roughly 75% so far this year. Experts have attributed the spike in price to poor crops in the Ivory Coast and Ghana, which supply two-thirds of the world's cocoa beans amid extreme weather and crop diseases due to lower fertiliser use by farmers. The start of the harvest in both regions has already fallen behind last year's pace. Media outlets report raising fears of a further tightening of the already oversupplied or undersupplied market, I should say. Well, that concludes today's edition of Compass. Coming up next is the Chris Smith Show. This is Jason Olborn for Compass on TNT Radio.